Days of the Year has marked the 14th of February as Donor Day. Donor Day celebrates people who have helped save other people's lives by donating blood, marrow, tissue and organs. It's a day that drives home exactly how amazing and giving the human spirit is because it pays tribute to so many people who have donated of themselves, often to help save the life of someone they've never met. Donor Day is all about being selfless. It's a celebration of everything that's wonderful about humanity, and it is a day we should all be celebrating. And today's living, breathing superhero is Alice Focht. Alice was born with cystic fibrosis and had a double lung transplant in 2018 at the age of 23 and then again in 2017 at the age of 33. She's the first person in South Africa to survive two bilateral lung transplants and has participated in three world transplant games. She is the financial director and co-founder of the TEL Transplant Education for Living Legacies organization, which was created with the aim of raising awareness about organ donation and informing the public of the need to tell their families of their wishes to become organ donors. It also provides support, a support group on Facebook for patients pre and post organ transplant. And by the way, she also just works full time in the financial sector, loves to exercise and spends time with her sister's two children. Welcome, Alice. Alice, it's such a pleasure to have you with us. So, Alice, in terms of Tell, I think Tell is is brilliant, and and I learnt about it when you ran the tattoo campaign last year. So, just to fill our listeners in, you ran a campaign where you could go off to um, a, a, a tattoo studio. Um, you had various relationships with various tattoo studios. My she was nineteen at the time, nineteen year old daughter, and myself went off to Tintaloka. And we had really the, so they're the inverted commas. I hope I've got that right. We've had those tattooed on on our wrists where our pulse is. And it's really a brilliant campaign in that firstly, first responders would know that we are organ donors. So they wouldn't have to look for our licenses or cards or anything like that. We've immediately told them that we are organ donors. And also it's a talking point. So people often say, why do you have that? tattooed on your wrist and I can tell them that I'm a do- uh, an organ donor and help to spread awareness. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that campaign and the successes thereof? Yes, so the main aim of the campaign was definitely the talking point thing um, because we can't expect all paramedics to be aware of the tattoo, etc, etc. But the awareness thing, you know, creating awareness and I mean, you can be sure that your family know your wishes if you've got a tattoo that states it or makes it clear. Um, and then also even strangers or friends who don't um, technically need to know your wishes, but it, it sparks a really great conversation. Um, and also it's just a fresh take. I mean, you know, it's it can become a tired subject, I think, um, you know, talking about organ donation and death and trying to convince people to talk to their families about death, etc. So I think the tattoo thing is just something new and fresh. And um, yes, it's just it's just something that people can relate to, I think. Well, Alice, uh, my family actually come from a family of transplants. My mom actually gave her twin brother a kidney. So it, oh, wow. made, it made an enormous difference in his life. And I mean, I think they gave him at the time about five years to live and he lived for 21 after the transplant. So I think, mm-hmm. I think what people need to hear is how the donation of organ can change somebody's life. 
How has it changed yours? Um, it's absolutely day and night. I mean, it's chalk and cheese. Before my first transplant, um, you know, and I would say about the, I had a de degenerative disease. So, you know, I wasn't born completely unable to breathe. It just got worse with time. So the last two years before my transplant, I would say I was mostly housebound. Um, I had to be on oxygen 24 seven. So you had your oxygen concentrator at home um, with a 15 meter long pipe so that I could walk around in the house being on oxygen. Um, in the end, I did get a portable oxygen concentrator that had a battery power of about two hours. So I could go out for two hours, um, which is very stressful, but it's better than nothing. And I mean, load shedding was a problem. If there was load shedding, I'd have to try and make a plan to go to someone else's house who's on a different schedule and get my dad or someone to load the heavy oxygen machine into the car, drive to someone else's house. Um, I couldn't even drive my car anymore because I didn't have an automatic car. So just changing gears and having a steering wheel that was tough to turn, you know, I couldn't do that anymore. So I had to drive my dad's car, which was automatic and a sedan, um, and he had to drive my car. It was disruptive in, in many ways. Um, I also, by then I'd finished my degree, but I couldn't actually start working because I was too sick. You know, if you wake up in the morning, I had to do approximately four hours of breathing treatments, um, inhaling medication, um, followed by physio, followed by taking a nap and recovering from all of that, followed by trying to eat about four times a normal person's calories. Um, so, yes, my, my entire day consisted of trying to keep myself alive. Uh, and then when you go to bed at night, after all of that, the next morning you just wake up and, and your lungs are filled with mucus again. You feel like crap again and you have to do all of it all over again. And this is at the age of like 22, you know, when your friends are falling in love and, and starting new jobs and, you know, moving out of, of their houses and becoming independent and you are just becoming less independent. And um, I mean, at certain stages, I was so sick and I struggled so much to breathe that my parents had to help me to go to the bathroom, you know. Mm. So that was life before transplants. And then afterwards, it's it's like a miracle because I walked out of hospital two weeks after my transplant, oh. being able to breathe without oxygen, didn't need a wheelchair, could walk to the car. And ever since then, you know, it's it's been life altering. And even though I had rejection of my first set of lungs after 10 years, um, it still wasn't as bad as it was before my first transplant. So even when the transplanted lungs were failing, it still wasn't even a patch on how bad it was with the original lungs. Alice, that's just the most remarkable story. I mean, a story of such incredible courage. And also, I think bringing so much into it with regards to things that we wouldn't think would affect, you know, we, we moan about load shedding, oh, you know, I can't cook or I can't watch TV or whatever, not really thinking of, of the incredible impact that it has on people who, who need electricity so badly just to stay alive. So I think thanks for sharing that with us because it really is a story of, of tremendous courage. 
No, it's a pleasure. And, and yeah, I mean, sometimes I still find myself, you know, it's been 13 years now since my first transplant and it's like your body does forget, you know, sometimes I sit in traffic and then I'm annoyed by traffic, you know, because the traffic lights are out and there's potholes and this and that. And then I have to remind myself, I'm like, you know, get a grip. Like, it's not bad. Like at least you're busy driving back from work and, you know, you're being normal. Like, don't don't be pathetic you know don't complain about the load shedding etc so um yeah you can't blame people for for not thinking about all these things but it's it's a good reminder every now and then even to myself that you know load shedding etc is not the end of the world and in terms of the process Alice, uh, what was the process and how long did you wait for the transplants so back then I was living in Port Elizabeth, which has obviously no transplant unit. Um, so in, at that point, only Johannes did lung transplants. So I had to come up for a consultation with a doctor at Moor Park um, and meet him and, and just try and see, like, can I get a transplant? Am I eligible? How does this work? Am I sick enough yet? Um, so I had to fly to Joburg do all of that um and at that point the doctor said to me like you're a late referral for transplant you should have been on the waiting list already like a year ago um so the the process is to get whoever your primary physician is to actually refer you for transplant to one of the transplant centers and you hope that they do it in time because not all doctors are aware of the options out there um I had to to almost research lung transplant on my own and mm. and you know find the right doctor to to see about it. So then they assess you. So they do what they call a workup, mm. where they admit you to hospital for about three or four days, where they test everything. They basically test every single organ in your body um, to see you know what are they dealing with and basically to see if you are healthy enough for a transplant because it's such a big operation. Um, And if you've got multiple organ failure, there's no use in replacing your one organ, but then, you know, your other organs are also giving in. So that's quite stressful. You know, they do all these tests, HIV tests, um, psychological tests, and then they have a board meeting where a panel decides whether you are fit for transplant mm. and then your medical aid needs to approve the transplant. Sure. So it's it's quite a long process to get onto the waiting list. Mm. And uh, it sounds to me like there's two kinds of uh, people who donate, people who donate once they are deceased and then obviously you have living donors. So for the people who want to donate either as living or as donors once they are deceased, what is the process for them to become donors? Yes, so if you want to be a living donor, you can donate a part of your liver or a kidney. Um, Those are basically the two organs that you can donate as a living donor. Um, If you'd like to be a living donor, you can actually email us at TAL. You can email us at info at TAL.org.za. And depending on where you stay in the country, we can put you in contact with your nearest transplant center and then you start a discussion with them. Um, In terms of being a deceased donor, 
which is, you know, what's needed for all the other organs and tissue. Um, the thing that happens in practice is a transplant coordinator um, will go to your family and ask them. So they don't actually look in your wallet to see where you registered as mm -hmm. a donor or they don't look on any database mm -hmm. to, to make their decision from there. So the only thing that impacts or that what will have an effect is if your family agrees. Mm. So in other words, I mean, sadly, even if you've got the tattoo that says you want to donate your organs, but your family says there's no way, mm. um, then they, they won't take your organs um, because that would be unethical. So mm. your family needs to know. And then your family will tell the transplant <clears throat> coordinator, yes, it's fine. And from there on, they'll, they'll make arrangements. So... That's the only thing. And also, even if you put it in your wall, um, you have to remember your wall is only read after you've passed away. Mm. So that'll be too late. Um, okay. So they need to, that's why they need to know while you're alive. And then, yes, if they give permission, then the, there's a whole team that deals with it from there. But that's the process. In terms of, of cultural prejudices, um, I remember with the, the sunflower fund who did so much work around you know your bone marrow which um for one thing i didn't know is that it's very specific um to your your ethnicity and and things like that um and culturally there was a, a, a big drive in terms of education what do you come up against culturally and that people think you need to, you know, you need to be buried or cremated mm -hmm. with, with all of your bits um, when, you know, from my own perspective, you really, really don't need to take those with you. How do mm. you overcome the cultural prejudices and, and how do you work to educate people around, around organ donation? Yeah, so luckily, we're lucky in the sense that with organs, um, the ethnicity does not play a role. Um, you know, it's more your blood group and tissue type. That's that's the only thing. So the ethnicity is not too relevant. Um, but that myth that you just said, that people think that they need to be buried with all their parts, that is one of the biggest problems. Um, because a few religions... A few religions, you know, the the believers, that's what they think when when even if you go speak to their religious leaders, they they do allow organ donation for, you know, for example, Jewish people, etc. Like if you actually speak to the rabbi and they think about it and they quote scripture, then, you know, organ donation is actually allowed. Um, I think people are just short sighted when they start thinking of needing to be needing to be buried with all their parts. I don't think they've taken all the rules of their religion um, into account. So, you know, those people, we normally do advise them to go speak to their religious leaders. Um, and, I mean, just from a practical point of view, I mean, you know, your appendix gets taken out. It, you know, you could lose teeth. You could have a hysterectomy and lose your uterus. I mean, that doesn't you're going to be incomplete when in the afterlife um but but anyway that's just my my personal opinion but the other the other beliefs that we struggle with is people who think it will cost them money to donate organs mm. um people who insist on being paid for organs mm. and they can't understand why they won't be paid for an organ which to me and to you it might seem obvious that you can't start rewarding people um, with money for organs, but, you know, it's not allowed. 
Um, and some people think that paramedics won't try to save you if if they think that you're an yeah. organ donor. They're just going to want you to die so that they can use the organs, which is also quite bizarre um, if you think of the practicalities. But yes, I mean, we just try to, you know, face each myth as as we, we encounter it. Um, we actually, for March, our theme is going to be like Myth Buster March. So we're going to try and, again, address some of those, those mm. myths. But, yeah, it's it's a... It's a tough battle and sometimes it gets easier, but, and people do get more educated, but there are still a lot of people out there who just um, are quite narrow-minded in their vision. Mm. All right, I I have two final questions for you. The first is that Mm. I think for the person who is donating and for their family, the idea that when you die, somehow you are going to be cut up there's this idea that somewhere in death there needs to be a level of dignity. So I think just to talk through the assurance of the fact that when somebody dies, that their body is not just treated, like you say, with, you know, that you're not going to be saved by the paramedics, but that there will be a dignity because the dignity afforded to the person who gets the organ is enormous. So that mm. dignity is passed on. It's not something that defiles the dead. Yes, no, that, that's a very good point. And um, I'm very happy to report that I actually think that the person donating the organ probably gets more dignity afforded to them than the person receiving the organ. Um, I've been in ICU and there's absolutely no dignity mm-hmm. involved there. But I know that um, they've instituted or instated this this thing that they call the donor pause where the theater staff and the doctors actually now do like a minute of silence even before they start procuring Mm -hmm. organs. So there's definitely a big thing surrounding, um, you know, showing respect to the body of the person who has um, passed away. And I know that they, they, they treat it as a normal surgery. So, you know, they don't hack you open and just, you know, treat you like a piece of meat. Um, they really do it carefully. I mean, they have to. I mean, the organs have to be taken out in a very specific way not to do any damage to the organs. So they're really extremely careful. Mm-hmm. And then afterwards, they, um, you know, stitch the body back up properly because, mm-hmm. I mean, some people want open casket funerals, etc. Yeah. So they, they really treat it like a proper surgery and, um, you know, do all the efforts, even if you donate tissue or, or bone. I know that if you donate bone and they take out a bone in your leg, for example, they, they replace it with sure. a prosthetic um, bone yeah. just so that the shape remains the same. And, awesome. you know, in the end of the day, the person doesn't look different and it doesn't seem like, you know, there's been any sort of disrespect paid towards the body. Amazing. So in, in concluding, the we've spoken a lot about your body and your organs, but in terms of your your life and your mental health and your ability to play with your uh, your sister's children, what has it meant to you in terms of your subjective experience of the world to be given a new lease on life? I would definitely say it's made me super grateful. Um, I mean... I would say almost every single day um, I think of my donors, both of them, and 
I mean, I've been able to do things in the last 13 years that I've never been able to do before my transplant. Um, I can almost say it's been the first time that I've been able to breathe properly, you know, because before transplant, my lungs were never healthy. You know, I've, I've never been able to breathe correctly and I've never been able to to just do some of the stuff that I'm able to do now. So it's not even, you know, some people say transplant is a second chance, but in a lot of respects for me, it's been a first chance, mm. you know, it's like, it's been the first time that I've been able to breathe properly. And um, even something simple like lying on my back while mm. I'm sleeping, like I've never been able to sleep on my back because my lungs would fill up with mucus during the night. So I would, I would, drown myself if I had to sleep on my back the whole time. So, you know, being able to do that every morning when I wake up and I am lying on my back, then then I know like this is a gift, you know, and, and I wouldn't have met my sister's children if I hadn't had these transplants. Mm. I mean, just in the world, like I would have missed so much in the last 13 years. Um, I often think like, you know, who would have been president when I died? Like who would have you know, just just political stuff, society, like there was barely even Facebook when, <laughs> you know, when I had my first transplants, like so much has happened that I've been able to experience that I wouldn't have. Um, and yes, I mean, when when I was waiting for my second transplant, my sister had her first son <laughs> and, um, you know, even then I was I was back on oxygen and I was you know, not bleak, but I was waiting for a second transplant. Mm. But I was even grateful just to be able to meet her first child, you know. Mm. Um, I mean, that was already 10 years after I technically would have died. So even that was just a miracle. So, yeah, I would just say gratefulness all around. And like you say, um, or like I said before, like not let small things get me down. So, load shedding or you know politics or traffic lights or potholes or whatever like i just try to take it all with a pinch of salt because in the end of the day i can breathe and i think if you can breathe you can deal with anything <laughs> and it's such an incredible story of of gratitude and, and hope and courage just in closing i would just like to ask you in terms of your two donors what is the mm. protocol around um, firstly, knowing who they were to to give gratitude to to them. You said you give gratitude every day to your to your donors, but also their families. Mm. You know, what is the protocol? Do do you meet their families? Do you stay in touch with their families, or is that just a very personal um, choice? Um, so the rules are that you're allowed to write a thank you letter to your donor family. Um, as soon as you feel ready, uh, it's not it's not compulsory, so it's up to you. And which I've done with both my transplants, I wrote thank you letters to the donors' families, and that's been very very important to me. And I've even written a thank you letter on on like a two year anniversary of my transplant as well. Um, meeting the donor family is a lot more complicated. So if you wanted to do that, you would. Um, you know, go to your transplant center and tell them, look, I'd like to meet my donor family. But I know it's quite a process because 
they have to then ask the donor family if they'd be willing to do it. And both of you would have to get psychological counseling before. So it's, it's quite a, a complicated process to do that. So, um, yeah, that I don't know many people who have been able to meet their donor families, but in terms of, of me personally, I feel like, you know, writing thank you letters and that really helps me. Um, yes, that, that, for me is amazing. Alice, thank you so very much. We're so grateful for the organization Tell. We will be sharing all of the details on our Facebook page. We look forward to your March Mythbusters and um, we, we will also share more information about your incredible tattoo campaign. So thank you so very, very much. Yeah, it's been amazing. Thank, thank you. you. It's been amazing. Thanks very much. And uh, people take for granted that we can breathe and we often say to people when you are you stress, take a deep breath, and the fact that you can now do that is just phenomenal. Mm. So thank you very much for your time, and we wish you all the best. Are you competing in any more games coming coming up? Um, I actually qualified to take part in the 2019 World Games, okay. and then I went and tore my Achilles tendon <laughs> while I was playing squash. So I couldn't do that, and this year's World Games has been cancelled okay. due to COVID. So hopefully one day when the world is safe again, um, yes, I do want to take more <laughs> part in more transport games. My Achilles tendon has healed now. And yeah, as soon as COVID's not a problem anymore, um, I'd love to do that again. And also, I just want to say, like you were saying now, you know, people taking breathing for granted. Mm. Like I've, I've encountered a few people in the shops that haven't been wearing their masks mm. properly. Mm. And I've actually gotten into... To, slight altercations with people <laughs> who don't cover their noses with their masks and then they tell me oh but they can't breathe and i can't deal with that you mm. know like you don't know what it means not to be able to breathe Absolutely. and if you don't wear your mask properly and you you think that you can't breathe then you're definitely not gonna like being on a ventilator you know mm. so people need to stop saying they can't breathe if they're wearing their mask um because if you really can't breathe while you're wearing a mask, then you need to see a doctor because then you've got an underlying lung condition. But, you know, if you're healthy and you can't breathe with a mask, that's um, not true. So important. Thank you so, so much, Alice. Have a lovely day. And uh, we'll put all of uh, Alice's details up online where you can interact. And Alice, I'm going to have the tattoo this weekend. <laughs> okay, great. Thanks, guys. Okay, thanks. Bye-bye. Have a good day. Please join Society Superheroes for World Day of Social Justice on Saturday the 20th of February and I'm very excited to be interviewing Mr. Mark Hayward, Social Justice Warrior.